Well, good morning. A grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And greetings from the saints at Risen Christ uh, Fellowship. We love you all uh, at Risen Christ. Uh, there are four of us here today, so please do be sure to meet Micah Letko, son of the wonderful Frank and Donna Letko, who have recently joined you guys. Uh, meet Dan Bonas and meet Dee Vieta as well. There'll be better conversation after the sermon than I will. Uh, let, me, let me pray again uh, just for our time in God's word. So join me in prayer. God, we need your help. Lord, the spirit gives life and the flesh is no help at all. So I just beg, Lord, in Jesus' name, that the Holy Spirit who inspired this psalm that we're looking at this morning would come and would help me, Lord, to preach with faith and with a heart that is toward you in faith and toward your people in love. God, I pray that you would open our ears and our eyes that by faith we might hear and see the risen Christ in his glory, that we might be moved to worship him, to obey him, to love him, to know his love, and to be made more like him. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, there once were a man and a woman. I was not the man in this story. They were probably in their 30s, and they were at a theme park together. And this couple, for reasons unknown and unknowable, decided that they would ride the slingshot ride together. So if you don't know what that is, the slingshot ride is two poles that go literally hundreds of feet into the air. And between these poles, there are these bungee cords that connect to a seat with two harnesses and seat belts that hold the harnesses in. And the, the seat is stretched hundreds of feet down to the ground so that the bungee cords between the poles are tight. And two people whose brains are not working right at that moment sit in the seats and they put down the harnesses and they buckle the seat belts and they are launched hundreds of feet into the air. And they kind of bounce around up there. Uh, and it's supposed to be fun. So there's this couple, and they're at a theme park, and they decide they're going to ride the slingshot ride. They wait in the line. They get to the front. They sit in the seats. The slingshot is cocked. They're talking nervously to one another about how fun the ride is going to be. And the, seat, the, um, the uh, ride operator decides that he's going to pull a prank. So he says to the man, he says, hey, man, your seatbelt is totally loose. It's not true. His seatbelt is fine. But the man panics. And then to make the prank worse, this ride operator says in his radio, hey man, I got both seatbelts completely loose. And then he launches them into the air. That should be illegal, by the way. So this couple, they're completely safe. But at least the man in this couple, they are petrified. They are not okay psychologically as they're riding this ride. They think they are being slingshot off to their death. Their seatbelts were fine and they made it off, but they did not enjoy the ride because they did not know how secure they were. They were secure, they were safe, but they were not okay 
because they didn't realize how secure they were. Well, this morning we are looking at Psalm 125. Please turn there again if you've, if you've closed your Bible. Psalm 125 is one of the Psalms of Ascent. So the Psalms of Ascent stretch from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134. You can see in each of those Psalms the heading, a Psalm of Ascent. And I think that the commentators are probably right who believe that the Psalms of Ascent were songs that godly Jews would have sung uh, as they journeyed together from wherever they lived to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to celebrate uh, holy feasts such as the Passover. So interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 29, Isaiah specifically mentions that when God's people would travel from wherever they were to Jerusalem, he says that they would sing on their way to these holy feasts. And that title, the Psalm, Psalms of Ascent, that fits really well with this idea of a song you would sing on your journey to Zion. Because even if you're not coming from the south, the Bible talks about going to Jerusalem as going up to Jerusalem because it's on a mountain. Wherever you approach from, you go up to get to uh, Jerusalem. And it also makes sense to see these Psalms of Ascent as pilgrim songs or songs you would sing on the way to Zion because there's this really strong Zion focus if you read the Psalms of Ascent. This would be an awesome thing to do if you have time this Sunday afternoon. Read from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. It'll take you 15 minutes maybe. You'll see a lot about Zion, about the temple, about Jerusalem. The very first Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 120, the psalmist laments that he's far from Jerusalem. He says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. But the last Psalm of Ascent, it's, it's beautiful. It's almost like the pilgrims have arrived at the temple in time to see the changing of the priests. And the priests are telling one another, bless the Lord in his temple. It's like they've made it. And they say, may the Lord bless you from Zion. So these Psalms of Ascent, they're pilgrim songs that Jews would have sung on their way to Zion. Well, on this side of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, who claimed in Luke 24 that the whole of the Bible was about him and about the eternal salvation that he would bring, it's not hard to see that the Psalms of Ascent are songs that God wants us to sing on our way to Zion, right? The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, it says that everything that Zion, Jerusalem, symbolized to the Old Testament people of God, we have that. Not just the symbol of that, but the reality of that as we come to God in Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, you have come to Mount Zion, Everything that Jerusalem would have symbolized to the Old Testament Jew. Friends, we're on our way there. We are all on a pilgrimage, if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the new Jerusalem. We are on our way to the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with our God in his city forever. So as part of the Christian Bible, the Psalms of Ascent say to us, Christian, this present evil world, it's not your home. You're a pilgrim. 
You are passing through. Don't get too comfy. The Psalms of Ascent say, listen, this is what God wants you to sing to yourselves as you journey to Zion. We're on a road trip to Zion, and God's given us a playlist. We're not free to tell ourselves and to sing to ourselves whatever song we want. God says, hey, as you're journeying to Zion, this is what I want to characterize your heart. This is what I want you to be singing. These are the attitudes and the faith postures that you're to have as you travel to the new heavens and the new earth, to the new Jerusalem. So that's what we see in the Psalms of Ascent. What specifically do we see in Psalm 125? What does God want us to sing in Psalm 125 on this journey to the new Jerusalem? Well, let me tell you what I believe is the point of Psalm 125. I think this is why Psalm 125 is in the Bible. God wants his people to know how secure they are as they journey to Zion. God says, while you're on your way, I want you to sing to yourselves and to one another how safe you are, how cared for you are because you're mine. God is not like the slingshot ride operator. He does not want you to freak out. He wants you to know that you're safe. So Lord permitting, let's look at this psalm under four headings. So if you're a note taker, we got four points. First point, our safety. Second point, our hope. Third point, our prayer. Fourth point, our enemies. Our safety, our hope, our prayer, our enemies. So first point, our safety. Verses one and two. Let me read verses one and two for us again. They say, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. The psalm opens with imagery, mountain imagery that speaks of God's people's security in terms of stability and of protection. Verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. How are they like Mount Zion? They're like Mount Zion in the sense that they, like a mountain, cannot be moved forever. Mountain-like stability, right? That's, that's some serious stability. Storms and civilizations and armies and animals and earthquakes, they don't move mountains. Those things sweep over them, and when they're gone... The mountain's still there. That's what those who trust in the Lord are like. They're stable. They're not ruined or moved or overthrown or undone by what life throws at them. Several commentators point out that verse 2 is even more poetically punchy than the ESV, which is a great translation, uh, reveals. So literally, verse 2 reads something like this. It says, Jerusalem... The mountains surround her, and Yahweh surrounds his people from now until forever. So Jerusalem 
It was literally built on a mountain that was surrounded by other mountains. So if we had time, we could go to a handful of other Bible stories where that's actually significant because Jerusalem was insanely hard uh, to capture for that reason. We could look at 2 Samuel 5, if you want to see that later. Uh, Jerusalem was tough for an army to get into. But for our purposes this morning... What's more important than the literal geography of Jerusalem is that Psalm 125 says that more impervious than the mountains surrounding Jerusalem is the presence of the Lord surrounding his people. I love it because it's an, it's an image not only of protection, it's also an image of intimacy, right? The image is not, you know, the Lord is up in heaven far off with a sniper rifle. And if anyone gets near, you know, he's going to take him out. It's that he's around his people. Right? It's a personal protection of his presence. So those who trust in the Lord, they are stable, they are protected, even like Mount Zion. God's people are safe. So what does this look like concretely in the life of a Christian? Right? Safety, that's an idea. What does it look like in our lives, the life of a Christian? You know what it looks like sometimes? Sometimes it looks like all of us getting to church safely this morning. Sometimes it looks like God keeping you from getting sick. Sometimes it looks like God providing for you when you didn't know how you were going to make it. Sometimes it means God protecting you from temporal danger. A great lunch conversation would be to share times that you know that God kept you safe. Sometimes that's what God's protection looks like. But here's what it doesn't mean. God's protection of his people does not mean that your financial well-being or your health or your relationships are always going to be stable. The Bible's so clear about that. It doesn't mean that God always protects his people from everything hard. It doesn't even mean that God always protects his people from terrible suffering and violent death. Right? In the book of Revelation, the risen Lord Jesus, he speaks to the church at Smyrna that's suffering. And he doesn't say, I will keep you from all tribulation or poverty or suffering. Do you remember what he says? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Listen, brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel does not mean that every one of our sisters and brothers in Afghanistan is going to get out safely in a physical sense. Many of them have, praise God. Many of them are in America now. Many of them are in other countries that have offered asylum. But God's protection doesn't mean that he will always protect us physically here and now as we'd like. Those are not his exceedingly precious and great promises. So what does it mean that he protects us? Is it just a sometimes? No, it's an always Always, God protects his people. Let me give you two things that the safety of God's people means, even in this life. One objective thing, 
and one subjective thing about the safety that God gives. First, objectively. I think we see the objective safety of God's people most clearly in the New Testament doctrine of the believer's union with Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and your Lord, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that union is more stable than Mount Zion. It is more protected than a city built on a mountain surrounded by mountains. Listen, everything that you have through your union with Jesus, adoption by the Father, indwelling by the Spirit, Jesus Christ as your friend and your high priest and your Savior and your comforter, all of that, a share in the love of the triune God, you cannot lose it. Nothing that you will go through in this life can take that away from you. When the storm that you're in blows over, and even if it lasts the rest of your life, it will blow over. When it blows over, your union with Christ will be there like a mountain, unmoved. But listen, it's, it's even better than that. It's not just that we have this thing, union with Christ, and none of the bad things that happen can ruin it. It's actually that God causes every single thing that he does allow to happen to us to work for our good. Romans 8, 28, right? The mountains of God's protection, they never, ever let anything through that isn't good for you. Listen to how the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism speak about God's protection of the believer. The Heidelberg Catechism is a teaching tool uh, that was created in the 16th century in Germany in a time when life was a lot harder than it is now. Listen to what our ancestors in the faith said about our comfort. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. If you want to know what it looks like, in a man who understands that he has this comfort in life and in death. Look at the Apostle Paul. His last letter that he wrote that we know of is what we have in our Bibles as the book of 2 Timothy. Paul says at the end of 2 Timothy that he knows he's about to die. He knows that he is being poured out as a drink offering. Soon, the Emperor Nero is going to sever his head from his body, and Paul sees it coming. But do you know what he writes in 2 Timothy 4, 18? Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, even in the face of a violent death, the Christian is safe. Objectively, whether or not you know it, your seatbelt is fastened. And God's telling you so that you will know it. That's the objective part of our safety. 
and knowledge of that objective safety that we have in Christ, the Bible's clear that it's meant to produce a subjective stability in us, right? We are meant to become in our souls, in our hearts, in our well-being, we're meant to become like a mountain, unmoved by the things that afflict us, right? Do you know any older Christians who when they face the next trial, they're just not shaken, right? They might be sad. Christians are encouraged to be sad. Read the rest of the Psalms of Ascent. They might be distressed. The Lord Jesus said that he was distressed in Luke 12, 50. But because of their knowledge of their objective safety in Christ, subjectively, they are like a mountain. Christian, God wants to produce that in us. Listen, friends, if your joy and your peace can be easily ruined by your circumstances or by how people treat you or by something that might happen to you or by something that you don't get, then you need deep in your heart to know more deeply how safe you are in Christ. In Christ, God's people are an immovable mountain surrounded by the impervious mountains of God's care. That's our first point, our safety. Second point, our hope. So verse three, it starts with the word for. Verse three grounds or possibly just explains the safety that we see in verses one to two. Look at verse three. It says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. So you see that word, I'm sorry, the phrase, the land allotted. The word that's translated that way is actually a word that gets used over and over again in the book of Joshua when God is assigning the promised land to the tribes of Israel. So this is, this is promised land language. This is about the land of Canaan. So in the Old Testament, right, God God symbolized, he presented typologically to his people the eternal salvation that Jesus was going to bring in the picture of Canaan, the picture of literally the promised land in the Middle East. That was a picture of the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to bring the Israel of God, all his people, into But what's really sad is that in the Old Testament, Israel's sin meant that it really didn't enjoy the peaceful life in the promised land that God had intended very often, right? At the time that the book of Psalms was kind of compiled, when it was all put together, a lot of people were living outside of the promised land because of an exile that God had brought on them because of their sins. Some of those who were living in the land Almost certainly, they were living under the rule of Greece or of Persia, right? They were under the sector of wickedness. The sector of wickedness had power over them. They could tell them what they could do and couldn't do. But Psalm 25 comes along and says, listen, the sector of wickedness, it's not going to rest on the promised land, not forever. And how does the psalmist know that, right? If you read the Old Testament... That actually seems like a really unlikely prediction because the scepter of wickedness spent a lot of time resting on the promised land, right? Israel enters the promised land and the book of Judges says that once they forsook the Lord, the scepter of Moab ruled over them. And then the scepter of the Philistines 
ruled over them. And then there was this brief, really bright period under David and Jonathan. And then the scepter of the Assyrians ruled over them. And then the scepter of Babylon. And then the scepter of Persia. And then the scepter of Greece. And then the scepter of Rome. Right? So why can Psalm 125 come along and say, hey, this rule of evil people over God's people, that's not going to last. Why can the psalmist say that? Well, turn over with me to Psalm 132, another one of the Psalms of Ascent. I'm going to read from verses 11 to 18. So Psalm 132, 11 to 18. This is a long section. Please don't zone out. Please stay with me. Listen, this is why Psalm 125 can be so sure that the scepter of wickedness is not going to rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Psalm 132, verse 11. It says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. You can read about that oath in 2 Samuel 7. From which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Where's David's throne? David's throne is on Mount Zion. God says, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. How do we know that the scepter of wickedness is not going to rest on the land allotted to the righteous? Because that land is spoken for by the son of David. God has said, the son of David will rule that land forever and I will bless his people under that rule. Listen, right now, we all live under the scepter of wickedness. We live in a world that the apostle Paul says in Romans 8 is subject to futility because of sin. We live in a world where there are literally evil regimes like the Taliban that delight to kill God's people, right? The devil still is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, to tempt, to persecute, to crush God's people. But this is the good news. God sent the son of David not to say, I'm going to wipe out all wickedness at once, because he, then he would have wiped us out. God sent the son of David to suffer under the scepter of wickedness. Do you remember what the Apostles' Creed says about the Lord Jesus? It says that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? Jesus came down under the scepter of wickedness, himself to suffer with his people and in the place of his people. He came down to suffer not only under the scepter of wickedness, but under the wrath of God against the sins of all of his people so that they could be freed. So that when he rose to life to reign as king, he could pardon them. 
He could bring them into his eternal heavenly kingdom and not curse them as evildoers. God raised Jesus after he died and he exalted him to his right hand. He said, sit at my right hand until I put all of your enemies under your feet. And that's why, that's why we know the scepter of wickedness is not going to rest on the land allotted to the righteous forever. Listen, Christian, whatever you're suffering under, it has an expiration date. When the Lord Jesus appears, the things that you and I suffer under, they will be gone. He will destroy all of your and our enemies with the word of his mouth. Psalm 125 assures us that God's people have an unshakable hope because, I'm sorry, they have unshakable safety because of their hope that God's oath to David will hold true, that his son will rule forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will enjoy his presence forever. Believers are secure now because of our certain hope that one day Jesus will come and he will deliver us from this present evil age. But what if we don't make it, right? What if our sin drags us away from King Jesus? What if the scepter of wickedness, my own wickedness, presses so hard on me that I lose my hold on Christ? We'll look at the rest of verse 3. It says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Listen, God knows how to keep his people from suffering. The promise is that God will not let the scepter of wickedness press so hard down on you that you lose hold of him because he holds on to you. That is the hope that we see in Psalm 125. The psalmist is moved by this hope of future deliverance that he has into prayer. And that's our third point there in verse four, our prayer. Look at verse four. It says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. So the prayer of the psalmist in verse 4 is, God, do good to those who are good, that he would bless his people. In context, I think he's saying, God, those things that I just said that I was really confident in in verse 3, would you do those things for us? Those things that you've promised to do that I'm sure you're going to do, would you please do those things? So isn't that interesting, right? In verses 1 to 3, he's not like, maybe God will deliver us. Maybe I'll be as stable as a mountain. He's sure. But he still asks God to actualize, to fulfill his promises in the life of his people. On Thursdays at Risen Christ, we've been studying through the book of Philippians. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Philippians, right? Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm certain that God who began a good work in you, he's going to finish it. And then in verses 9 to 11, he prays that God would do just that. He prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that they would be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. So Christian, ask God to do what he's promised to do for you. Find the good things that God has already promised to do for you in the Bible and pray them. That glorifies him. That's one of the ways that we enjoy our relationship with him. 
That's one of the ways that we work together with him. We work out our salvation as he's at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me point out one other thing about this prayer here in verse 4. Did you notice that it's a prayer that God would bless us according to our works? Verse 4 is a prayer that God would bless us according to our works. I wonder if that sounds strange to you. Let me just explain really quick. One of the things that the leaders of the Protestant Reformation saw very clearly is that justification is by faith alone, through Christ alone, apart from any works. The reformers were so clear that that is the only way that anyone other than Jesus Christ is ever declared righteous by God. Romans chapter 4 verse 5, it says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justification is by faith alone apart from works. One of the things that the leaders of the Protestant Reformation also saw really clearly, and you'll know this if you read them, is that judgment is according to works. Okay, so stay with me. Judgment is not on the basis of works, but it absolutely is according to works. So the only thing that can justify you is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you by faith alone. And the only way that you get that righteousness is by faith, without works. Sorry to be repetitive. I don't want you to miss that. But on the last day, when we all stand before the judgment seat of God, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 is so clear that we're going to receive according to what we have done. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, speaking of the judgment at the end of the world, it says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So brothers and sisters, please don't understand me. We should never, ever, ever trust in our works to merit us anything from God. That is unbiblical. But passages like Psalm 125, they, they warn us that if there are no works, if by God's grace there's not a real sense in which my heart is not perfect but is upright toward God, if there's not a sense in which that's true, then I haven't trusted in God. The Bible says that those whom God saves, he changes, not to make perfect, but to make like Jesus in some way, even in this life. There's, there's even more about our works, though, in verse 4, right? On the day of judgment, what does God take as the evidence that we really believed in Jesus? Our works, right? We show our faith by our works. That's the evidence to prove that we had faith in Jesus. But more than that, God generously rewards our imperfect works, right? All those whom God saves in Christ, when he makes them upright in heart, when he makes them, by God's grace, good, not justifyingly good, not perfectly good, but when he makes them like Jesus, he rewards that kindly. Not because he has to, not because we earned it, but because he's that generous, right? Can you see 
how God-centered and how glorifying all of this is. God gives his people eternal life. Why? Because they deserve it? No, because Christ deserved it. How did they get it? By doing good things? No, by believing in Jesus only. Then God changed them. Why? Because they worked really hard? No, because that's God's grace to them. Then God rewarded their imperfect change that he produced in them. Why? Because it deserved his favor? No, because he's generous, right? This is a gospel that glorifies God. There's no question about who the hero is here. It's not us. It's God. And brothers and sisters, if this makes you freak out, oh no, what if my works are not enough? I look back at verse three. God will keep you from stretching out your hand to do wrong in a way that causes you to fall from Christ if you're in him. The graciousness of the reward that God gives his people for which the psalmist prays in verse four is, is really thrown into contrast by what we see in verse five, our fourth point. This is what awaits those outside of Christ. Fourth point, our enemies. Verse five. Look there at the first two lines of verse five. It says, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. So all throughout the Bible, the salvation of God's people and the destruction of God's enemies go hand in hand. You cannot separate them because the seed of the serpent is at war with the seed of the woman, right? The picture painted by the Psalms of Ascent, if you get to read through them today, you'll see that you're either one of the Lord's people or you're one of his enemies. Either you love God and his Christ, the son of David, more than anything, or your heart is hostile toward him. Every person is either willingly going to bow the knee to King Jesus or with allegiance in their hearts to the scepter of wickedness, they're going to say, we will not have this man to rule over us. And God's word is really clear. Verse five says that he will lead them away with evildoers. They will not have a share in the new heavens and the new earth. They will dwell under God's wrath in hell forever worse than being under the sector of wickedness. Friends, please, please listen. If you're in Christ, you are safe. But if you're not in Jesus Christ, however the journey of your life has gone so far, you are not safe. However old you are, however young you are, however healthy you are, however happy you are right now, if you are not in Jesus Christ by faith, the Bible says that you have turned aside to your wicked ways. The things that you have thought and said and done, they are wicked and offensive in the sight of God. They're hostile toward him. And he says that on the day that Jesus Christ comes back to claim his throne, it will not go well for you. You will not be safe. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, trust in Jesus today. Call out to God to save you from the wicked ways that you've turned aside to through Jesus Christ, right? Before you are led away with evildoers to the lake of fire, trust in Jesus Christ. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter up a mountain outside of Jerusalem to die under the wrath of God so that you 
if you will trust in him, can be saved and safe like Mount Zion. Listen, if you'll come to Jesus today, you will experience how the psalm ends. Peace be upon Israel. You will be a part of the Israel of God, of God's people, and God's peace will rest on you now in the day of judgment and forever. My friends, if you take nothing else away this morning, remember this. God wants his people to know how safe they are as they journey to Mount Zion. God wants us to go through life singing about his protection of us, about our hope in him, that we can count on him not only to pardon all our sins, but to reward our imperfect good works, singing that God will one day destroy all of our enemies. Let that be your song as you journey to Zion. In closing, let me just give you really briefly two reasons that it's so important that we know how safe we are in the Lord. Two reasons that this is so important. The first reason, we've already talked about this, is that it strengthens us to endure suffering. I did not know the man personally, but one of the Christian men whose ministry I most admire, one of the men whom I would most love to be like, was a man named David Paulison. And he died um, about two years ago. David Pallison loved Jesus Christ. And everyone who knew him spoke glowingly about how well he loved them. He was not a man turned inward. He was a man turned outward in love for God and his people. And this guy was a Bible scholar. He went to Westminster, which is not a guarantee that you're a Bible scholar. But he actually was, unlike me. David Pallison was good friends with a man named Paul Miller another giant in the faith, another Bible scholar, godly man. And after David Pallison died, Paul Miller spoke about the mutual encouragement that he and David would share in times of difficulty. So listen to this story that Paul Miller tells about Pallison. So Paul Miller writes, after he had just had open heart surgery, David called me from his hospital bed, overcome by depression. I could immediately hear it in his voice. I knew my words couldn't touch him. So over the phone, I read through all the Psalms of ascent. His spirits lifted as I read. I read that a few months ago, and that is what put the Psalms of ascent on my radar. Where did these two giants in the faith go when one of them needed help? in suffering. They went to the Psalms of Ascent and David Pallison was reminded at his lowest point, David, you're going to Zion and you are safe as a mountain, surrounded by a mountain, however you feel right now. And David Pallison made it. He's there. He's happier than we are right now. Knowing how secure you are strengthens you to endure suffering. Last thing I'll say, Second reason this is important is that knowing how secure you are frees you to love other people. Knowing how secure you are in the Lord frees you to love other people. One of the things that makes me so bad at loving other people is that even though I don't feel like it in the moment, I fear other people. I think that they and their opinion of me 
and whether they're favorable toward me, that has the power to bless me or to curse me. And so I fear them, even though I don't look afraid. And if they displease me, I'm either cold or I withdraw or I worry or I try to worship them or I get angry at them. But what we see in the Bible is that those who know that they have all they need in the Lord, that say with Psalm 27 from the beginning of the service, what can man do to me? They are secure enough to go and love even people who don't love them, even people who let them down. Do you remember how our Lord Jesus loved his unworthy disciples on the eve of his crucifixion? His disciples who did not get it. His disciples who were about to deny him. His disciples who were quarreling among each other who was the best, who was the greatest. Do you remember how Jesus loved them by washing their feet? Do you remember what John says that Jesus knew that enabled him to wash the feet of unworthy sinners? Listen to what Jesus knew from John chapter 13. John writes, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Why could Jesus love unworthy people like us? Because as one who trusted in the Lord, he was like Mount Zion. And he was free because of that to give himself in love for sinners. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God would work that security in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this psalm. Lord, I pray that the work of your spirit here today would be that we sing this psalm in our hearts as we journey to Zion. Thank you that you have said that you do not lose one of your people. I pray that you would not lose one of your people here at Joy Community Fellowship, that we would know that we are secure like Mount Zion, that we would hope in the reign of the son of David that will undo everything wrong. God, I pray that if anyone is here today who is still under the scepter of wickedness in their hearts, Lord, who has not bowed the knee to King Jesus, who is not safe in him, would you in your mercy give them life? Would you give them faith and cause them to trust in him? We give you all glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We bless your name and thank you. Work in us what pleases you through Jesus, to whom be all glory forever. Amen.